Welcome to Middle Grade Mavens, where two author mums discuss their favourite middle grade books, provide recommendations and share insider industry tips for authors trying their hand at middle grade. Julie Ann Grasso is the author of the Frankie DuPont mystery series, cupcake enthusiast and part-time library book wrangler. Pamela Eucherman is a writer, dancer and homeschooling mum who sometimes finds time for sleep. Both Julie and Pamela devour middle grade books, not only for research, but to share with their combined brood of four munchkins. Hi, Pamela, and welcome back to Middle Grade Mavens for our 65th episode. Yes. Hi, Julie. Hi, everyone. So what's been happening? Well, it's the school holidays, which... um doesn't really mean much right now but it does mean that three hours of my day also are not subsumed by homeschool so I've had some time for other things and one of the things I've been doing is researching some new homeschool resources for next term and yep. I was looking at a grammar curriculum which is popular with homeschoolers because I want to start covering grammar in a more methodical way we haven't really done it that much so far my eldest has done it at school but my youngest hasn't so I wanted to do it it's, for me it's important and um yeah, I, I was looking at this curriculum and I was absolutely blown away. It's not, it's not just grammar. It covers poetry and eventually um, writing literature, but it, it does it in such a detailed and engaging way. And I was looking at, I was actually looking at the um, high school levels and I was like, I want that for me. I, need, I think <laughs> I need, like I've done, you know, how many writing courses have I done over the years? And, you know, I did writing in high school and I, I my yeah, writing's pretty it's good. Never grammar, never ever. No, it's not, and it's well. This isn't so. The high levels aren't. They're not covering the basics of grammar. Um, I mean, the, the two books that I got, one is about poetry, and the other one's about writing literature. But it's it's about you know using grammar as an in an art as an art form. I guess it's, it's, right. it's more focusing on the craft of writing of writing beautifully. You know, writing literature. Um, and I, it's stuff I've never specifically had taught, you know, to me in any, in any of the courses I've ever done. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I bought these two books and, um, have been spending my time <laughs> reading the books and, and using that to go over some of my existing writing and working on other writing. And, um, oh. I think I need glasses now because my eyes just yes. can't take reading anymore and i'm reading a beautiful beautiful book for the podcast as well so um oh. yeah so this school holiday for the kids and um mum's schooling herself <laughs> right but um yeah why not and apart from that just getting a bit of sunshine and hanging out with the boys and waiting for yeah. lockdown to ease and as i was just saying we were just chatting before i was saying that my kids motto is um, that they are either reading, screening, or trampolining, and mm-hmm. I can't really get them to do much else. So I'm just gonna <laughs> let them go. Can't go anywhere. So yeah, take advantage of it. Oh, I'm with you. Yeah. So what about you? What have you been up to? Oh, well, I know what you've been up to, but well, sure. <laughs> I am happy to report that our birch forest toilet is now complete, nice. and we have moved on to butter icing which is a oh. delightful colour. Um, so that's gone on the, in the cupboard under the stairs, which I don't know if I've ever mentioned on the podcast, but my office is actually like a Harry Potter cupboard under the stairs. And 
it was kind of in need of some love because the kids put their hands over everything, you know, fingerprints everywhere. Um, so I think we've definitely got the DIY bug, which is quite hilarious because you can't even go to Bunnings at the moment. I've, I've literally done a million click and collects and oh, honestly, you can imagine the chagrin of the poor Bunnings kid who had to retrieve my 99 cent paint stir <laughs> where everyone else in line is having like cement and turf loaded into the vehicles oh. and he has to walk oh. out with my, my paint stir. <laughs> I tell you what, I've actually got a Bunnings order waiting for me at the moment and I can't go and get it myself because I've ordered these massive, massive pots. Oh no. I need to repot my olive tree. So it's waiting for my husband so he can go and pick it up. Otherwise I'll break my back. Oh no <laughs> way. Lift yep. it up into the back of the car. Yeah. So big oh. pots and a couple of big bags of soil and, you know. Oh. <laughs> well, Why yeah, that'd be that? you. You be the yeah. car behind me at Bunnings and I'll be <laughs> at the front with a paint stirrer. <laughs> Well, but anyway, it started with this else. tiny little tram stop, to stop toilet that we have, and it's progressed to the entire living room. <sighs> anyway. Oh, well. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, you've got a nice place for your books. That's yes, good. I do. I do. I, I think I've posted that on Instagram. Anyway, I guess I should, you know, end this useless diatribe about paint. <laughs> and I shall not mention the fact that Midnight Sun has currently defeated me with its 700 pages of intense first person point of view enough already i can hear pamela's thoughts in manner of edwin cullen so onto the books what is the <laughs> title have of today's book um well i thought i'd start out with a bit of a bang today um it's the sequel we've all been waiting for well i have anyway um <laughs> yes <laughs> it's the third book of the nevermore series which is um hollow pox the hunt for morrigan crow by Jessica Townsend, and it was published by Hachette Children's Books on September 29th, 2020. And I saw a huge rush on people going out to pick up books yes. and be disappointed because they hadn't been delivered yet or oh. been sold. <laughs> so hopefully people will have their books. And um, yeah, this Saturday, I think it is, is uh, Love Your Bookshop Day. So the bookshops are getting all ready for that. So yes, don't forget to love your bookshop this weekend. Definitely. So would you share the jacket blurb with us? Yes. Strange things are happening in Nevermore. Morrigan Crow faces her most dangerous challenge yet in her latest wondrous adventure. The highly anticipated third book in the award-winning Nevermore series from one of Australia's best-selling and most loved authors. Morrigan Crow and her friends have survived their first year as proud scholars of the elite wondrous society, helped bring down the nefarious ghastly market and proven themselves loyal to unit 919 now morrigan faces a new exciting challenge to master the mysterious wretched arts of the accomplished wondersmith and control the power that threatens to consume her but a strange and frightening illness has taken hold of nevermore turning infected wanimals into mindless vicious animals on the hunt as victims of the holopox multiply panic spreads and with the city she loves in a state of fear, Morrigan quickly realises it's up to her to find a cure for the holopox, even if it would put her and everyone in Nevermore in more danger than she ever imagined. Oh, if only we had our own Morrigan crow <laughs> for the current yes. pandemic. Yes. <laughs> yes wow. Yes. And what genre would you class this as? Oh, well, it goes without saying, really, it's fantasy through and through. Mm. 
And what is the estimated word count? Oh gosh, well, definitely well over your ideal, Julie. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's over five hundred pages, so probably over one hundred and twenty thousand words at a at a guess. Wow. But um, I loved every page of it. So oh, I knew you would. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. So tell us about it. Uh, yeah, so last year I reviewed the second book of the series, Wonder Smith, and I don't usually review sequels, but um, these are strange times and these are great stories. Um, but there's a whole other level to this particular book. There's a letter at the beginning of the book from the author, Jessica Townsend, who explains that she wrote this well before the pandemic, but was surprised and a bit spooked by what was happening in the world. And you'll hear more about this in more detail in the interview, um, which was fantastic, by the way. Um, and you see, in this instalment of Nevermore, Morrigan Crow now knows that she is a wondersmith and is working on her ability with wonder, but there's an illness that arises, a virus. It only affects wonemals, who are beings with varying degrees of physical characteristics of animals, but with human intelligence. The illness, which they name holopox, causes wonemals to become sort of rabbit and they attack those around them, making it dangerous for everyone. The holopox, holopox spreads and panic ensues. The Wondrous Society tries to cover the whole thing up, but of course that leaves the public to make up their own story. And of course, eventually the truth gets out. Morrigan knows that somehow her arch nemesis, Ezra Squall, feared Wondersmith, is somehow behind it all, but she doesn't want to face him again. However, eventually she realises that she must and she needs to step up in her role as Wondersmith. Wow. It does yeah. sound pretty amazing. Yes. <laughs> I will get there yet. Yes. So I think we can gather, but what was your overall enjoyment? Well, you know, you know, I love the series, um, but, oh, geez, this book gave me so many goosebumps. Oh, um, and I was, I was really looking forward to it um, and I knew it had been delayed. And the more I read it, the more I understood why it was delayed. And, and again, you'll hear a bit more about this um, from Jessica because it wasn't just because of the virus um, but it is unbelievably prescient not not just that there's a virus but so many aspects that resulted from the virus including the reactions of the Nevermore you know the, res the residents of Nevermore I call them Nevermoreans um, the panic the fear the societal divide they even had contact tracing of sorts they had isolation a curfew and eventually a lockdown and she even called it a lockdown in the book and um yeah makes pains to remind or made pains to remind her editor that she called it that before it actually happened you know? yeah um because she was still editing it um you know when this was all starting so you know in, in the book people begin to begin to fear the one and was and treat them as other as unworthy and then that spawned protests i mean the storyline so eerily mirrors what we have been experiencing in real life yes and, and in the media this year and i don't think jessica could have done a better job of writing a fictional version of this year into the world of nevermore if she had done it in hindsight it's just, just unbelievable isn't it yeah yeah i i had to stop and I, you know i got halfway through i just had to stop and just take it all in you know just yeah so um yeah spooky parallels aside it's it's a gripping book jessica weaves her characters and the quirky magical nevermore world so brilliantly and her characters are so full and interesting Morrigan's story continues to an inevitable conclusion, but the specifics of that conclusion are so unclear, so unpredictable, that it continues to be a fun journey to watch Morrigan grow and learn and reveal more about Ezra Squall throughout each book. 
I just love being in this world of Nevermore. And it's one of the few series that I, I just want to stay in and I don't want to rush to get to the end. Yes. So, yeah. So who <laughs> will love this book? What age would you recommend it for? Um, look, I'd probably say nine plus. There is some darkness and it start, starts to get a little darker with each book, but not too much. Um, but it's always tempered with light. And I know of children quite a bit younger than that who are reading it, but you know, if they can handle it and they can handle the length of it, then yeah, good for them. Yay. Yeah. I think it might be time for me to pull it out for Giselle. Cause I mean, she can definitely handle the length. Oh yeah. But, oh yeah. yeah. Good yeah. age. Yeah. I think she'd mm. love it. And you know, we're, we're working on um, the wizard of once series at the moment. We've just got, cause never and forever the fourth book of that came out the same day as um, Holopox. Oh yes. um, yep. So it's, it's been, it's been, it was a huge big, uh, what do they call it? Super Tuesday. It was a big book oh, drop yeah. day yesterday. Um, yep. So um, yeah, we're, we're going to finish and I'm, I'm going to be reviewing that soon. Um, we're going to finish that series. And then I think I'll start on the first book of Nevermore as a read aloud for my boys. Yeah. I think, I think it's time. I'm really, I'm really hoping that they um, can stay engaged um, yep. and love it as much as I do. Yeah. Cool. Wow, so, well done. Well done, yeah, Jessica. So, yeah. Good on her. Um, and yeah, listen out for the, for the interview after she's so lovely. Yeah. Um, so your turn, Julie, what's the title of your book, this first book today? Yes, A Clue for Clara by Leanne Tanner, illustrated by Cheryl Orsini, published by Alan and Unwin on August 4, 2020. Yeah, I have this book and I haven't had it. I've been so, because I've, I've had books for CBCA as well, so I've been trying to, you know, yes. get all these books read in between. I haven't got to this one yet. I'm really looking forward to it. Could you share the jacket blurb with us? Yes. Greetings, human. I'm looking for a major crime to solve. Clara wants to be a famous detective with her own TV show. She can read claw marks and find missing feathers, and she knows Morse code. There's just one problem. She's a small, scruffy chook, and no one takes her seriously. But when she teams up with Olive, the daughter of the local policeman, they might just be able to solve the crimes that have been troubling the town of Little Dismal. Sounds so funny. What what genre would you class it as? This is middle grade mystery with com with a comedic, anthropomorphic chicken protagonist. <laughs> That's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> How's that? I don't even know if I've said the word. You know, I can never say anthropomorphic, and I don't even know. Yeah. I think it's there's an n in there. I think there's an n in there, isn't there? Anthropomorphic. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> Such a good word, though. Uh, Medic anthropomorphic chicken protagonist. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> so yes. Where does it lie on Julie's word count? I'd say this uh, word count meter. <laughs> oh, it's right on my word counter meter. It's about 30,000. Oh, good. Can you tell us about it, please? Sure. Clara is the smallest chook in the yard who escapes her aunts and sisters and cousins to Olive and Constable Dad's house so she doesn't get pecked every day. Turns out sitting around the house all day watching television enlightens Clara to the fact that she wants to be a master detective. Trouble is her chook scratchings in charcoal are not always interpreted the way she wants. That is until she finally gets Olive's attention. Clara, Clara is desperate to solve a major case 
So when Constable Dan is having trouble solving the stock thefts on the local farms, Clara is adamant the master thief is none other than the school bully, Jubilee Crystal Simpson. Olive can't seem to convince her otherwise, and what ensues is a hilarious mix of chicken style lost in translation with Clara misinterpreting almost everything the humans do. It doesn't mean she can't solve a crime though, because Clara is one plucky, pardon the pun, detective. <laughs> I love it. It sounds like a, um, a, you know, a bit of a comedic mystery as well. And we, it is. We, there hasn't been a lot of, well, we were talking about mysteries a while ago. There's not a lot of mysteries. Um, but yeah, the they're comedy good, they're mystery. Good the yeah. 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 <laughs> so enjoyment. How did, how did you enjoy this? Oh, this was entertaining on so many levels. We see the whole thing from the point of view of a misunderstood chick, Chook, <laughs> which at <laughs> times was just downright hilarious. Giselle read this one cover to cover pretty quick and declared it was very funny. So, of course, you had me at Chicken Detective. I had to give it a go. We also see the human side from Olive's diary entries from her um, due to her newly departed mother, which was heartfelt and entertaining as we see the mystery unfold. Now, I love the way Leanne Tanner wove a mysterious and humorous tale with a hearty dose of heart. And the illustrations were classic Cheryl Orsini style, which of course means fantastic. And she is another mm. one of my illustrator crushes. Yeah, she's As, great. Oh, yeah, I love the tales of Mrs. Mancini. So... Mm. As far as chicken solved detective mysteries go, I dare say I will be happy to see what is next from the chookyard. Oh, good. It's on my pile. I'm going to have to read it soon. Definitely. Who will love this book? Yeah, what age would you recommend it for? This was great for eight plus, I think. And I think confident and reluctant readers will enjoy this. Is it Diary Star? Is that what I saw in there? Well, it is oh. for Olive. And then, yeah, so it's, two, it's got two points of view. Okay, cool. Yep. That sounds good. Hmm. Well, what is your second book, Pamela? Yes. Uh, so my second book is called The Wild Way Home um, and it's by Sophie Kirtley, published by Bloomsbury in Australia on August the 1st, 2020. So it's fairly new. Yeah. Well, would you share the jacket blurb with us? Yeah. When Charlie's longed-for brother is born with a serious heart condition, Charlie's world is turned upside down. Upset and afraid, Charlie flees the hospital and makes for the ancient forest on the edge of town. There, Charlie finds a boy floating face down in the stream, injured but alive. But when Charlie sets off back to the hospital to fetch help, it seems the forest has changed. It's become a place as strange and wild as the boy dressed in deerskins. For Charlie has unwittingly fled into the Stone Age with no way to help the boy or return to the present day. Or is there? What follows is a wild, big-hearted adventure as Charlie and the Stone Age boy set out together to find what they have lost, their courage, their hope, their family, and their way home. Oh, sounds brilliant. Hmm. And what genre would you class this as? Um, I suppose it's a time slip adventure. Hmm. Yeah, yes. I, I wouldn't wouldn't really say it's a historical fiction okay Maybe. okay but time slip yeah <laughs> let's go with time slip yeah and what is the estimated word count uh 
it wasn't a very long book. I think it was getting up to about 40,000 words. Yeah. Hmm. Sweet. Yeah. Tell us about it. Yeah. So as described in the blurb, 12 year old Charlie Miriam runs away when his baby brother who he has longed for is born and is very sick. It's Charlie's birthday and all he wants is to cuddle his baby brother. But the reality of the pale baby and the worried parents is just too much for him. He runs into the local forest, which he has grown up playing in and knows like the back of his hand. But then he finds an injured boy face down in the stream and saves his life. And suddenly the forest is less familiar. Slowly he realises that he has gone back to the Stone Age. The injured boy has lost his memory, but he knows he needs to search for his baby sister. Together the boys must learn to trust each other and find their way home. As the Stone Age boy's memory begins to return and they unravel the mystery of his family, Charlie realises that they have a lot in common and he just wants to go back to his own time to hug his baby brother. Oh, sad. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to cry. <laughs> I don't think I oh. can read this one. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, as a mother of boys, it is quite, it was a bit teary yeah. at the end. Oh. Um, Nothing okay. bad happens, but you know, it's yep. just there's a lot of emotion. But it, it is an adventure as well. So yeah. I am prone to emotional um crying during books. So yeah. yes. Yep. <laughs> and what was your overall enjoyment? Yeah, look, it's a beautiful, poignant coming of age story set in a Stone Age adventure. I love the Stone Age details. And the contrast between the two boys, as well as the similarities, it was really beautiful the way she did that. There were some great moments of suspense and some beautiful moments with Charlie's family. And I, I love that there was no antagonist, no evil, no conflict. The barriers that Charlie had to face were all natural. They were, you know, his own fear and the wild things in the forest. Um, and yes, wow. you know, it was a bit um, poignant at the end, a little, you know, a little bit of teary, but it was, it was beautiful and um, you know, it was, it, there was positive positivity and there was hope and it, just, it ended on a, you know, beautiful note. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and who will love this book? What age would you recommend it for? Um, yeah, this, look, this is a great book. I think for those who enjoy the wolf girl books by Anne Doe, but it's a standalone story and, and then has that time slip element. I've seen it compared to um, David Armand's Skellig, which I'm really keen to read. And the classic Stig of the Dump. Um, it's beautiful and simply written, but doesn't have any illustrations beside that absolutely stunning cover. I love the cover. Um, so that's my long-winded way of saying I'd recommend it for about seven and up. But it could be a great read aloud for slightly younger kids. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Hmm. Well, maybe we will have to get it because Giselle loves Wolf Girl. Like, loves it. <laughs> Yeah, it depends on why she loves it, really. Um, if it's the adventure element, then, you know, and being out in the wild, then, yeah, definitely this would be great. Um, yeah, maybe. You know, with a boy character and, and, and you know, he's, he's out in the wild in the, in the Stone Age instead of just in, you know. It's it's actually less scary than Wolf Girl, I think. Wolf Girl um, has more illustrations, but I think it has more tension in terms of the, you know, the war that's going on and, and lots of unknown um, yeah, okay. whereas this is more of a, just a heartfelt family sort of story. Yeah. <clears throat> right. I'll, I'll send it to you. <laughs> I think we might have to. Yeah. Yes. 
yeah. yeah. And it, it just so happens that I actually have a spare copy anyway. So. Oh, <laughs> brilliant. I got it from two different places for review. So that's oh, yes, of course. <laughs> so, Julie, what is your second book for today? Yes, our second book is Egg and Spoon by Alexandra Tiley, illustrated by Giselle Clarkson, published by Gecko Press um, on October 7, so next week. Aha, uh-huh. yes, and I'm, I'm, this is in my basket, in my, <laughs> yes. my booktopia basket ready to order. Could you mm. share the jacket blurb with us, please? Yes. Egg and Spoon is a scrumptious collection of good, healthy food and an occasional indulgence. Afternoon snacks, things on sticks, cakes, slices and dinners. A boiled egg to slick, slip into your pocket for later. Many recipes are naturally gluten-free or vegan and all are delicious. <coughs> Excuse me. Alexander Tiley is the owner of the chef at Pippi Cafe, a little pink house, cottage garden and a pizza truck. A place to celebrate eating together and pleasure in small things. Sometimes you need a layered cake, a crispy roast chook, a popsicle for breakfast. Quite often, all you need is an egg and spoon. Oh, you're making me hungry just, just listening to that. <laughs> <coughs> yep. Yep, I definitely have to get this. Um, tell, please tell us what the genre is. This is an illustrated children's cookbook. How's that for a first? Yes, I know. haven't done one before, but we have to <laughs> i don't think i've ever seen an illustrated children's cookbook before um no except way. for that pomegranate place do you remember that oh, one it was a 12 12 pomegranate place yeah, yeah. um yep. yeah i haven't that actually looked good. inside that one yeah we we recently got um the Donna Hay Brilliance for Kids, which isn't illustrated. Um, but my kids were just, they just thought it was the best thing. And we have loads of recipe books and they are welcome to use any of them. But the fact that this was for kids, they were like, oh, you know, yeah. we've got to use it. We've got to make something. So yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. And I guess we won't bother with the word count. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> um, you know, but um, yep. you did mention that you wanted to read out the dedication so please do yes I don't think I've ever read a dedication so wonderful so I I decided that I had to read it here so here goes Mm. Pippi Cafe is my restaurant you'll find it in a pink building in a little village called Havelock North if Pippi was a cake well I'm not sure she would want to be a cake but if she absolutely had to be she would be a rather old-fashioned one like a sponge but not a normal sponge with cream and strawberry. She would be a very tall, about six layers, so you might worry she would fall over, but she wouldn't ever. If Pippi was a dog, she would always be there right next to you or just behind, making sure you were safe and she'd only leave your side at night when you were fast asleep and no one would ever be quite sure where she went, no matter how often they tried to follow her. If Pippi was a mythical beast, of course, she would be a dragon. I know unicorns are all the rage, but to be a green Chinese dragon covered in different coloured lights would be really quite wonderful. But the thing is, Pippi is a cafe. So for most of the time, anyway, she's not a cake or a dragon or a dog. Still, if she were to be a cookbook, she'd be this one, Alexandra Tiley. 
That's such so great writing. Oh. Have you ever read anything so lyrical in a cookbook introduction? No. What oh amazing writing. Just we have beautiful. to go to Pippi Cafe. It's in New Zealand. Oh, <clears throat> wow. Okay. So, you know, Is when it... the bubble opens, <laughs> the we bubble, can go. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> oh, I just want to get on a plane right now. Yeah. Oh, great writing and great food. What could be better? Oh, my oh, gosh. Oh, yep. Yep. <laughs> Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. So tell us yeah. about the book, please. Better get onto the book. Okay, to begin, we have a section on getting started. Alexandra simply tells the reader tips about how to go about it. Great tips like read the recipe first, gather your pots and pans, line the tin, all those things have I've been trying without success to instruct the resident nine-year-old during the pandemic. Mm. wouldn't think that would be hard but no <laughs> no 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 my resident nine-year-old who will actually be 10 tomorrow yes um, yes he has a habit of walking into the kitchen and putting a frying pan on the stove and saying can you help me light it yeah yeah well, we've cooking? actually Where's your ingredients <laughs> we've managed to um light the gas stove so that's mm. been a big she's yeah. really conquered that because that's been a huge sort of worry yeah. So, yeah. Well, we have so, to do ours with a match. Ours, ours is dodgy. Oh, you know, no. I have, to, I have to help. But the fact that he just puts a frying pan on there. And then no thinks everything else. Yep. Yeah. And then, like, maybe then he'll go get the eggs or something. I'm like, oh, yeah. You know. I was joking to Pamela before that I think they're, they're brother and sister from, mm. you know, just <laughs> yep. from the so universe. Similar. So similar. <laughs> So yeah. next, next we move on to breakfast, which begins with popsicles. And I can say you had the nine-year-old at breakfast popsicles. <laughs> but every chapter from there on contains the wonderments of a child's palate, from hot chocolate of the gods to good things to eat on sticks. On one page, we are instructed to throw out the rules. And on another, we're carefully guided on the illustrated art of foraging. There are recipes that range from simple to complex, often with gluten-free or vegan substitutes. But in each recipe, Alexander's wit, Alexandra's wit and humour gently moves you along the stages. I don't think I've ever encountered a cookbook like it before. Oh, I'm so looking forward to it. I'm actually thinking we should make a, you know, a homeschool module, right? Every, you you know, every week yep. we're doing something from this book. So you should we've been doing something yeah. every day and even maybe twice a day the past week and we're yeah. trying to take photos um with it but um you know sometimes the <laughs> the actual product isn't very photographable <laughs> so <laughs> but a couple are so i'm going to put them on on the instagram page when we when this goes live as well oh good yep. so your enjoyment sounds amazing this one is special, I have to say. The illustrations by Giselle Clarkson are nothing short of exquisite. And I know what you were thinking. How can you have an illustrated cookbook? Don't you need photos? The answer is no, you do not. By illustrating the food, you open us up to the possibilities. But there is never a perfectionist photo for which we need to aspire. So what if our offering looks just like the illustration? Isn't that all the better? Mm, that's a great point. Yeah. Yep. 
I think you can tell by the immense amount of gushing about this book, how much I loved it. And I can say it has come during the like stage four lockdown where we've been like, Giselle's been sort of searching through cookbooks, looking for things she can achieve. But, you know, often the recipes are so, you know, full of sugar or just Mm. really too hard. Um, And we're actually avid MasterChef fans Mm. Um, and Junior MasterChef is actually starting next week, which we are ecstatic oh, for. Yes, so. we'll be we'll be watching that. We they've been watching um, Top Chef, which is on oh, uh, ABC. Yes. Me. So yeah, we'll go from one to the other. <laughs> yep. And I have to say, I personally found this book really incredibly enjoyable for another reason. Um, you see, my latest manuscript has an eleven-year-old girl who is an aspiring MasterChef. So to see a cook book aimed right at this age is further proof that there are actually kids out there that will definitely enjoy my book so mm-hmm. fingers crossed one day dear listeners you might get to read it nudge wink. oh yes we hope so <laughs> <laughs> but i think oh. i better stop there or this episode will be three hours long so oh, yeah i think we could talk about food and books forever couldn't we yes we um <laughs> who will love this book what age would you recommend it for this would suit ages eight plus, and when I say plus, I mean eight to 108, but this one is one of my top picks for the year, I'd have to say. Oh, awesome. I'm definitely getting it. I, I can't wait to see what you make, mm, but anyway. I might just be using it myself, but I'm definitely getting it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, that is it yeah. for our reviews, but stick around to listen to Pamela chat with author Jessica Townsend about Nevermore, Fantasy and a Deadly Virus. Plus, I chat to Renee Tremel, author and illustrator of the incredibly popular Sherlock Bones series. So stay tuned, folks. And we'll see you next time. Renee Tremel is the author and illustrator of several picture books for children, including Once I Heard a Little Wombat and Ten Little Owls. We first met Renee at the launch of her wonderful picture book, The Great Garden Mystery, quite a few years ago now. Her graphic novels for independent readers include Sherlock Bones and the Natural History Mystery and the most recent Sherlock Bones and the Sea Creature Feature, which has just been published by Alan and Unwin on September 1, 2020. Renee's stories and illustrations are inspired by her love of nature and her background in environmental science. So hi, Renee, and welcome to Middle Grade Mavens. Thank you so much for having me, Julie. Now, I suspect you have quite an interesting origin story on how you got into writing and illustrating children's books. Will you share your brilliant beginnings with us? I'd love to. I came about this kind of in a circuitous route. I, when I was a child, I was really creative. I loved writing and drawing, but I was always told you had to, um, an art, a real artist couldn't make a living, couldn't make a living as an artist. It wasn't a real career. And I was also thankfully very academic. So I was really kind of pushed into studying, you know, the hard sciences and maths and things. And I went on to get a degree in science and work in science, which I absolutely love. I do love science, but all that time I kept taking um, like classes in writing and drawing and graphic design and painting. And I didn't realize how important that was until a few years later when I realized that's what I was kind of living for was that creative time. So we, um, I decided to give up my job and start trying to make a living as an illustrator. But, but getting into books was a little bit harder because I had this idea that 
someone would find me and discover me and they would look at my art and go, oh, look, she could clearly do a book. And so I didn't do anything. I didn't, I didn't join any groups. I didn't join Squibby or go to any meetings. I was also scared that um, you had to be somebody really established to go to those meetings, which hopefully if anyone's listening, anyone can, you know, they realize they can go. Yeah. And if you're afraid, don't be, everyone's lovely. But I didn't know that. And I was scared to join any of those groups. Um, and I finally heard about the CYA competition in 2011. And I just decided I was going to make it, try, you know, just make a go for it. I was going to take this story I had written, draw some illustrations and just put myself out there and enter a competition. Uh, I got really lucky that year because it was Zoe, Zoe Walton from what was Random House at the time. Oh, uh, wow. the judge. Yep. And she was looking for a book like the one I put in the competition. And so I won the competition and I was also um, got a contract to publish so, it. That's one very. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> so which book was that, Renee? That was One Very Tired Wombat. And that oh. was published in 2012. Yep. Oh, amazing. Oh, I love hearing origin stories like that. It really gives you some hope, I guess, <laughs> for our listeners. Now, Sherlock Bones is a pretty unique concept. How did it come about? Well, Sherlock's Bones was an idea that kind of percolated and grew for about seven years. And it, it was really inspired by an exhibit in the Queensland Museum in Brisbane. They have this display of Tony Frogmouth skeletons and they're in all these different poses and they have, they look like they're laughing and they have huge eyes and they're, they're, it's just hilarious. Like I, I loved that exhibit and I started just drawing pictures of it. You know, I take photos at the museum and I would come home and draw the skeletons. But really quickly, I realized that the skeletons were troublemakers. And I started drawing them in the museum, being naughty at night, you know, stealing things or playing with the exhibits. And I started thinking I wanted to do a book. And this shows how new I was to um, creating children's books because I thought that this really dark concept, I had really dark pages and this scary looking skeleton who carried around a dead stuffed bird would be brilliant. <laughs> would be brilliant for preschool children who couldn't read. I was like, it'd be a wordless picture book. Um, yep. So it was kind of like I had a good idea, but I had the wrong place for it. And it took yep. years for me to kind of figure out how to take this idea and find the right place for it. And um, I think it wasn't until one night, I, the name Sherlock Bones kind of popped into my head and I was like, oh, okay it's a mystery. It's for older kids. And then I, it kind of gave me that direction I needed, but I definitely, I mean, it was, I have those early drawings and it's really funny that I, I really thought that was brilliant for children, yeah. little babies, you know, like, <laughs> oh, it's amazing how it, it generates, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so walk us through the process. Cause I mean, it's, it's an, a, an incredible book. Um, do you start with images or does the text come first? This, I think for these graphic novels, it's really iterative. I mean, I've intermingled. I, I'm doing drawings in my head as well as on paper while I'm writing. Yep. So um, I definitely start with sketches. And for this book, because I did it on a much tighter timeline, um, you know, I started out with kind of figuring out what I wanted to put in the museum this time and creating sketches of the new characters and doing a lot of research. And then um, I'm going to put together a synopsis and a storyline because I have to know what's going to happen Yep. Um, and that, and um, from there, then I'll write like a running dialogue. So I'll just, in my head, I'll know who's speaking and I'll just write everything they're saying. I'll write notes about who's walking where or what they're seeing, who's doing what, if I think a page turn should go here. And it's really this long, you know, 30 page document of just people, the, these characters talking back and forth. And from that, I'll start sketching. Like yep. um, 
picking my days and really sketching in little thumbnails. And then I'll take an, an A5 notebook and I'll start to do a rough, a rough of the book essentially where I have it full size and I can see the page turns. So I've really, it's really important when you work on a graphic novel, those page turns are so important. Yes. Uh, and there's so many of them, you know, there's so many and it's just a little bit of pacing is off and you miss that page turn. Um, so you, I do spend a lot of time just visually trying to lay it out and looking at it and looking at how it fits into that book format. And I think, I think I've asked you this before, but you, you are completely like textiles, aren't you? You don't use any digital in that initial process. In the initial sketching, it's all pencil. Yeah. yeah. But I, I definitely <clears throat> photograph that and bring it into the computer and do that. Yeah. Digitally. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, I know, I think it might be Lucinda Gifford does that similar, but she's also done a bit of going straight on to the, onto the digital sort of format, which is, I think Sally Rippon also says that she's just, she's not quite sure whether she loves it or hates it, but um, yeah, it's a new concept, isn't it? Like you can, like if you're a, if you're a, a pencil artist, you're going to stick with pencil, aren't you? But actually mm -hmm. you can also do it on a, on a digital format. Well, you definitely you skip that middleman and that middle process of having to get the artwork scanned. And yeah. Yeah. But um, I have to do it in pencil because after I do this, this document, I end up cutting it up because I'll, I'll move things around and change where they are. And so I really like that physical tape. I get the tape dispenser and the scissors and I'm yes. cutting and pasting and redrawing and moving the pages around that way, which I think digitally I would go nuts. I couldn't, I couldn't see the whole big picture yeah. that way. Your office must look like um, my five-year-old's daycare, <laughs> cutting and sticking. There is a lot of mess that most people don't see. Yes, it's all down <laughs> at the feet. You know, along the sides. Yeah. So, Renee, there is so much educational information entailed in Sherlock Bones. How did you hone in on the message and the themes that you wanted to portray? Well, I think I've mentioned how much I love science and science issues, and I absolutely love museums. It's like one of my favorite places. I think it's just a treasure of information, even museums that sound like they'd be boring. Um, I want kids to love that, but I also didn't want to hit them over the head with it. So I really kind of put the story first, I think, and then I come in and sneak my little tidbits in the background. But I want kids to read it and have a good time and laugh and not maybe even think about the fact that there is science or that a museum yep. is a place of information, but if they are interested at the end and then go back and read the displays or read some of the signs or look at the, those bits. Um, but yeah, I really just, I just wanted to convey my love and hopefully get kids interested in those same things. Yeah. Yeah. You've definitely done that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, Giselle has read it and loved it. So you've hit oh, the target. So oh, thank you. <laughs> so how does editing work in a graphic novel? This really, um, I just find this fascinating. Is it really painstaking? Like, are you sitting there with an editor basically looking at the story and going, oh, that doesn't quite fit or how does it work? Well, we definitely break it into stages. And I've been working with Alan and Unwin and they, they know their graphic novels pretty well. Mm. So they've, they've been really great at helping me. Um, but I think for this book, what I did was I wrote the synopsis like you would for any, any kind of book. And then I wrote a chapter outline of what I thought would happen specifically. 
Yep. And then we sat down. That's when I sat down the first time with the publishers and we went through that and made sure that the storyline was solid, that the, you know, what, what I had proposed made sense and that they could kind of see how that would fit. And there was nothing above or too above or below the age group that we were targeting. And once we were really happy with that kind of story structure and where things were going, um, that's when I, that's when all that hard work comes in with that A5 notebook that I was talking about where I'm drawing out, I'm essentially pencil sketching the book at scale. Yeah. Um, and that's where all of the editing happens because the publishers don't want to read like a, they can read the script, but you can only get so much information oh, from exactly. the script. You really got to see it. So I have to have those sketches and they're, they're horrible sketches. Thankfully they trust me and they know how I draw <laughs> that they let me get away yeah. with awful sketches. But, um, it's, it's all that time because of pacing. That's really where you start to get to pacing and you start to realize if I've hit a boring spot where they're just walking and talking and nothing's happening. And, yeah. um, you often don't, you just can't see those problems until they're on that paper. I mean, it's the same with any book, but in this case, we're like 280 pages. So it's, you got to have it to see. Um, and with, you know, with the, this last Sherlock Bones, I had it all sketched out and I came out a hundred pages over what oh, we were aiming for. Oh, wow. And I did kind of go back to the publishers and say, Hey, could we, could we make it a hundred pages longer? And they, they were very smart to say no, because I think I'd still be drawing the pictures yeah. if I had done that. But, um, you know, it takes a lot of editing. Like I had to go in and just you know, really trim it up and make it a lot yep. tighter, but yep. it's all, it's all at that stage. Like 99% of the editing is at that stage. Cause by the time we go to final art, the publishers have already seen a lot of it. So they might have little quirks like, oh, his arm is missing or it looks kind of yep. funny the way it's cut off here, but yep. they already have an idea of, of what it's going to look like visually. Yeah. So that's that bulk of it is in that middle stage. And you really can't be enamored with your own words. That's the whole point of editing, isn't it? Like some nice words have to go. Mm -hmm. Great ideas. Like <laughs> you've had this funny, but it's so funny, this joke that they yeah. make. Yeah, pick go. your jokes. <laughs> <laughs> so Renee, you have a few other creative ventures as well. Will you tell us about those? Yes, I also um, create my own illustrations for like stationery and prints. And I also license my artwork to some Australian companies that use them on a variety of homewares and stationery and uh, Christmas ornaments. Um, and I'm, I'm really lucky. One of my best friends lives in Sunshine Coast and she does hand, handcrafted ceramics. And so she takes my illustrations and, and puts them on her, um, her ceramics, which is really fabulous. And then, you know, I, I think I've always wanted to be a sculptor. I love clay, but I, it's so messy that I can't do it in my house, in my studio. Yeah. So I've kind of, during this most recent ISO, I've been learning how to needle felt and I've been needle oh. felting little, little um, dead stuffed birds that you have like at the museum, have little tags on their feet. Oh, <laughs> so fantastic. just, I like to sculpt. I love working with my hands. So that's kind yeah. of how I keep myself happy. Oh, that sounds amazing. The things you do in <laughs> ISO, I'm painting a house, you're making dead birds out of needle felt. Exactly. So. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> so with the global pandemic taking so much away from authors and illustrators in terms of promotion, how have you adapted in the lead up to releasing a book in these difficult times? I, I think the biggest thing I had to do was let go. And I was really stressed when I was watching what was happening, you know, in March and April, kind of yep. trying to predict, predict where we would be in September. And at some point I just had to go, let go. I'm just, I can't plan anything. I just have to assume it's not going to happen and go from yep. there. Yep. Um, which is hard. Cause you know, I love, I love having a plan and I, you know, I'll spend mm. days just plan, but um, let it go. And then I just got in touch with the bookstores that I normally do events with. Cause I love going into bookstores and doing free workshops and activities with the kids. And 
um, I just contacted them and said, hey, I'm happy to put together this little online virtual book tour was what I was calling it. So I just yep. took some photographs from these different booksellers, um, Instagram and Facebook, and I drew Sherlock Bones visiting their shops. Oh, and I just fantastic. had a little campaign. Yeah, I had a little campaign all month where I was posting their photos. So I was, I was trying to highlight the bookstores and the bookstores, a lot of these bookstores were Melbourne based that they couldn't have yep. anyone even in the shop. So it was yep. just kind of a fun way to just acknowledge that I love working with them and that I was sad I couldn't be there with them. And um, yeah. I sent them all signed book plates and stickers and little, you know, character badges. And I just tried to, I still tried to involve them and, and make sure that they had some, a little bit of value added yep. products. Yeah. Oh, good job. Cause I know that it's really stepping out of the comfort zone, isn't it? Like you have to rethink how you do everything. It is. And it's really hard, I think, because the kids are all doing, you know, WebEx or Zoom or whatever mm. they're using for school. It's really hard to get kids into, a, you know, an, a, or it was for a while, they're hard to get kids, I think, involved online. And so yep. it's how do you how do you reach people <clears throat> yep. when you can't reach your, the children that you really want to talk to and you can't go to schools, you know? Yeah, so, so hard. Yeah, it's, it's been really, really hard, really isolating. As mm. it is, isolation. <laughs> yep. Yep. It fits the brief. Yep. Mm -hmm. So is there perhaps a middle grade book on your shelf, which you would like to give some love to maybe a new release or even an old one? I, it's a lovely question. And you actually mentioned the person whose book I'd like to talk about, which is um, Lucinda Gifford's newest book, which is the wolves of gray coat hall. Oh, I just yes. finally, I've had it on my <laughs> shelf for the past couple of days and I finally started it and I it's, it's just adorable and she's yes. so funny and has, she's a wicked sense of humor. I love it. And her yep. drawings are just, classic like it's so yep. much fun and um and she's our books came out at the exact same time and we've had lots of time trying to brainstorm what in the world we were going to do and so, yeah um, yeah so it's massive it's a fabulous companion yeah yeah we're massive lucinda fans here so she's fabulous <laughs> so what is next in the wings for renee tremel so um right now i'm working on some little graphic novels for younger readers. So they will be about Ooh. 64, 64 pages, but they're for really early independent readers. So we're talking like, you know, your early reading preps, ones and twos. Yep. Yep. And they're just silly, you know, silly, jokey friendship books about kindness and acceptance. Oh, nice. And that's with Alan and Unwin and a, and a U.S. publisher named, known as Capstone. And we'll be still coming oh, out next yes. year. Yes. Late next year. And then, um, you know, I'm always working on picture book manuscripts. I'm sure yeah. I've got a, a bunch that aren't working, but they're there and uh, someday I'll get them to work. Um, and, uh, you know, dying to do another Sherlock Bones. So we'll see how everything yep. pans out when um, the world can resettle and see if they, we can do another Sherlock Bones book. Um, and I have one other project that I'm really just brand new excited about, which is a, um, a magical realism middle grade graphic novel for slightly older than Sherlock Bones audience. Oh, my and pulse just quickened. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I'm a listener, so I knew I would get you with that. <laughs> you got, you had me at magical realism. I know, I know, I knew, it. I knew I did. But um, yeah, and so I'm in early stages, but I'm just loving having it's just this world in my head that I'm building, and I'm just walking around. That's all I want to think about and talk about. And um, yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I have been there. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, don't hold back on us, Renee. We we need to have that when it's <laughs> when it's on its way. <laughs> I will, I'll, you'll be the first to know. <laughs> yeah. So, where can our listeners find you if they are interested in checking out your books? Well, I have a brand new website, and it's ReneeTremel.com. 
or you can also come at it as reneesartwork.com. Tremel can be a bit of a tricky spelling. Yes. Um, I'm also on Instagram as Renee Tremel, and I'm on Facebook as Renee Tremel Author Illustrator. Oh, nice and succinct. I, I've yeah. got all different names for all my handles. <laughs> Just terrible, really. <laughs> well, oh, well, what a delight it has been chatting to you, Renee. Thanks so much for joining us. And we look forward to seeing Sherlock Bones and the Sea Creature Feature swim off into the kidlit world. Thank you so much, Julie. Jessica Townsend lives on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. Her pet fascinations include public transport, ancient cities, hotels, opera singers, Halloween, secret societies and gigantic cats, all of which have weaseled their way into Nevermore, The Trials of Morrigan Crow, her award-winning first novel published in 2017. Wondersmith, The Calling of Morrigan Crow, the second book in this record-breaking series, was released in 2018 and she is here to talk to me today about the third book in the series, Holopox, The Hunt for Morrigan Crow. Welcome to the podcast, Jessica. It's great to have you on. Thank you. I'm very delighted to be on here. Well, happy launch day. Thank you very much. <laughs> very exciting, exciting day. It's been a long time coming for this one, and I know there's been a big rush on books today. What a buzz. Has it been a big day for you? It has. It's been so strange because usually um, on on the launch day itself, I am I've already started the tour usually one or two days beforehand, and I'm you know going from school to school and rushing around and doing presentations and videoing, you know, going to bookshops and doing radio interviews and that sort of stuff. And today it was just the cruisiest launch day ever. It was. It, it's. I guess it's like a. We, I suppose we have to find some kind of silver linings in COVID and that was a, a nice little silver lining in that it was just, I actually had time to kind of stop and enjoy it and which is really bizarre because normally I don't really even, it doesn't hit me that the book has come out until weeks later when the tour has ended and I'm back home and I've finally recovered from it. And, um, but I was nice. I went out for, I went out for a nice little lunch with my, my mom and my sister and my niece and, um, you know, even had a cocktail. It was amazing. Nice. <laughs> nice. Well, it's lucky for you that you're not in Melbourne. So you got to do that. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I know. Oh God. Hugs to everyone at, oh. in Melbourne at the moment. That's, um, it's really, it. really tough. <laughs> We're getting yeah. We're getting it. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, third book in, it must be, you know, nice to just enjoy it in a different way, have a different experience. Yeah, it, it is actually. It's just, um, it, it's not a thing that I'd even thought about because I just thought, okay, well, the tour's not happening, but we're kind of doing a virtual tour where, you know, we're doing video and stuff. But actually, it's just so much, you know, like I'm here, I'm, I've got a jumper on the top of me, but I'm not going to lie, I'm wearing pajama pants on my bottom half. So. <laughs> You know, that's, that to me is a real symbol of what this entire tour is like. <laughs> it's like business on the top, pajamas on the bottom. It's the face of 2020. <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> oh, dear. So, Nevermore, it's, it's one of those rare big children's fantasy series that appeals to so, so many. Can you tell us how it all began? Um, so the very, very first kind of little kernel of, of its existence was just an idea that I had for a character when I was 18. Um, and I'm now 35. So I suppose that means that Morrigan's been in my life for, for nearly, uh -huh. you know, just about 17 years now, which is, uh -huh. I'd never thought about that before. That's, That's weird. half your life. <laughs> um, <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, so 
I was um, I was in some kind of like, I can't even remember what it was for now. I was like at a conference or seeing some kind of talk, some keynote speech someone was giving and I was not listening. It was very dull, unfortunately. Sorry to that person. Um, <laughs> and I just started plotting out a little idea for a story that I had. And the idea was I had this woman in my head um, and her name was Morgan Crow. And she was kind of this almost Mary Poppins-ish figure, but a little bit darker and a little bit sinister. And I say Mary Poppins just as as kind of a, a general attitude more than anything. You know, she was this very capable, confident woman who was quite funny and quite straightforward and straight down the line. Um, and she was going to be, um, she was she was Aunt Morrigan Crow in this, um, in this story. And it was actually going to be a story about another little girl who went to live with her aunt, who's this sort of magical eccentric woman. Um, and the aunt had a best friend called Hawthorne Swift. Um, but then I started realizing as I was plotting it that I was obviously, and you can probably tell by the way I'm talking about her, I was so much more interested in the aunt character. And I started just thinking, just doing what writers do I suppose and what storytellers do is asking questions about her and wondering where did she come from where like what happened in her childhood to to turn her into this fabulous interesting woman um and that was kind of the first little nugget of it and then a, a couple of years later or three or four years later I moved to London and I'm from the Sunshine Coast in Queensland which is really lovely place really nice quite sleepy especially back then much sleepier than, than it even is now um and going to London this place with you know, this thousand odd year old city and, and just felt quite magical. And, and it felt like there were kind of secrets around every corner and just history on history on history. And, um, and I'd never lived in a city before. And so I then had this idea about creating this basically like, a <clears throat> excuse me, basically like a magical version of London. Um, and it was just marrying those two ideas together. I, I wanted my main character, Morrigan, to have that experience that I had just had of like coming to this place and just feeling like I've never been anywhere like this before. This is, it felt like Dorothy coming to Oz for me in real life. And um, it, yeah, it was just kind of the marriage of those two things of Morrigan coming to this strange place and just feeling instantly as if it belonged to her. And as if she, as if this was the place where she was always meant to be and that she belonged in. So yeah, it was sort of bringing those two things together. Wow. Um, I, I can see that London influence. I love the Briley Rail. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> so very British, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. I'm, I'm actually English originally and I've been to London quite a few times. Oh, really? So it's, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Whereabouts are you from? I'm actually from the very south, from Cornwall. Um, which oh, is lucky you. Holiday destination. Cornwall is so beautiful. Yeah. But I, but I, never, I lived there for a while, but we moved all around, all around England before we came oh. out here. So yeah i mean it's such a like it, it is such a i mean australia is too but you know it's just so kind of rich with stories and secrets and history and it has its own kind of feeling of magic anywhere you go yeah um so you know yeah i mean i i actually i don't think i've written anything based <clears throat> in london but i tend to write stories that are based in either cornwall or, or somewhere in england more than i write oh, them in australia which is weird yeah i, I think maybe because it's just you know the landscape in, that I grew up in it's what I know you know that's interesting because I have I want to write so I would love to write a story set in Australia but I feel like I wouldn't I, I, I don't know I have this weird block about it where I'm like I wouldn't even know where to begin and I think it's just because I can't like coming to the UK as a as an outsider 
I felt like I could immediately see all of those things that, you know, made it so fascinating and made it interesting and magical. And, and as I've grown older, I can see what makes Australia such a, such a beautiful, magical place. And, and even the place where I live, which, you know, it's, as I said, it's, it's beautiful, but as a kid, I found it so boring. I thought I lived in the most boring place in the world <laughs> and, you know, coming, even coming back there, when I moved to the UK, so many people, I, I, I kind of live there roughly half the time now. And every time I say to someone, oh yeah, I'm from Australia, I'm from the Sunshine Coast, mm. I just get these weird looks and people are like, why would you leave that place to move yes. here? Like, are you insane? Yeah. Um, and I never understood that. But then coming home the, the, after the first time that I'd lived there for a couple of years, I really did get it because I finally, I had those fresh eyes for the place. Yeah. And I think it's just because, because I'm swimming in the Australian culture. I'm like really deep in it that I just, for me, it's, I don't know. It's just like, does a fish know that it's wet? Yeah. You know, like I find it so hard to kind of pinpoint what it is about Australia and Australian people that, that is kind of, you know, um, that, that, that belongs in a story. And do you, does that, does that sort of make sense? I just, I feel like I have yeah. a very fuzzy brain about, about writing Australian stories, but I'm, I'm dying to, I really yeah. would love to write something set here. Yeah. Um, I just worry I wouldn't do it justice. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, it's difficult. And it's definitely familiar because I've spent, not just been in the UK, but I lived in Amsterdam for quite a few years and, um, you know, oh, Amsterdam wow. is such an old, old city like London with so much yeah. history. And then all the Dutch people are like, oh, why are you here? You know, I want to go to Australia. <laughs> I'm always like, yeah. Well, you know, I live in Melbourne. It's not much different from the UK. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, you know, I had to make this choice when my kids were little. Do we want to live permanently in Holland or do we want to go back to Australia and bring up our kids in Australia with, you know, family around? And we made yeah. that choice to come back. And, and I, I got back here with such different eyes you know, just, just yeah. saw the place so much different. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I get it. <laughs> um, and yeah. I, do, you know, and I live it like I do, I live in the city, I live in Melbourne and it's very, you know, very much like any other city, really. It's, it's, we don't have all the, you know, you were saying about snakes in the roof before when we we're talking offline, like I've never even seen a snake <laughs> like in anywhere, uh, like, you know, really near my no, house. I used or, to work at a zoo. Yeah. So I've, so I saw a lot at work, but I've definitely seen plenty of them in my backyard. And when I, I remember when I was a teenager, I had one, um, like slither in through my bedroom window and touch my toe as I was laying on the bed and I jumped up to turn the light on and by the time I turned around it had you know it had also turned around and was very politely going out the window like oh sorry I didn't want to bother you um oh, <laughs> but yeah dear. I slept with my window closed after that <laughs> so that would horrify my family anyway um it horrified me for a great many years but I'm over it now <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Maybe it'll make an appearance in a in a future. Maybe. <laughs> so um yeah, let's let's talk about a hollow pox. Um let's move on to something a little bit more serious and this amazing, eerie coincidence that you wrote about a pandemic in a book that was to be released just as a pandemic was spreading around the world. What gave you the yeah, idea apologies. for this? Apologies, no. everyone. <laughs> well, what was going through your head? as life began to imitate art? Oh, it was so strange because I was in the UK at the time. So I, um, my, my sister and my niece and nephew were living up in Manchester and they had just moved there for what was supposed to be five years. And we, we all came rushing home when the DFAT warning went out to Australians overseas. So <laughs> we're all back here now. Um, but it was, it was weird because I, I had this, it was kind of this real dual experience of, you know, kind of, 
it, it was that slow sort of awakening f for starters of, oh, isn't that funny? There's a, well, I mean, no, it was never funny, but you know what I mean? Like, isn't that, mm. isn't that peculiar that mm. this is starting to happen in the year that I'm supposed to be releasing this book? How, how strange. And then it, I think as we all slowly came to grips with, oh no, this is going to affect us. This is going to affect everyone. This is quite serious. This isn't a flash in the pan. Mm. Um, having that realization of, I remember I asked my editor, we were, um, we were all out to dinner one night in Covent Garden and I, I asked and I was sort of half joking, but not really joking at all. Like, am I going to have to write a new book? <laughs> Are we going to have to can this? What, you know, is it, what, what's, I, I, cause I, I'm so close to it that I, and at that point I was also kind of in the tail end of, of, of edits, um, of my last set of edits. And I, I, I just, you know, you have that closeness to your own material where you're like, oh, hang on a sec. Do I need to, I need to step back and look at this as if I'm reading it for the first time in the time of the pandemic. And because oh. the last thing I ever want to be is insensitive. I have a, an absolute horror of hurting anyone or, you know, or, or just being, being insensitive in, in some sort of way. And I knew that this was starting to get serious and that it was going to affect a lot of people. Um, but Ruth had that, I think my editor had that little bit more of a distance to the material. And she was like, no, it's different. Like it's spooky that it's that, you know, there are similarities in the way that, um, in the way that things were being handled by people and by governments. And, um, but you know, the, the illness itself is quite different. And she said, you know, you've, it's fine. It's, n it's never a joke in the book. Like it's, you know, it's never, it's yeah. never mistreated in the book as, as something, as some kind of comedy material or anything. Um, oh so, so I think that we quickly realized that, no, this is probably going to be okay. And, and Ruth sort of thought, Ruth, I can't remember if it was Ruth or Gemma, my agent, what someone said, like, if anything, this might be something that, you know, for kids, it could actually help give them a little bit of perspective because, you know, there are, there are topics that are talked about in this book. And it was really just me sort of imagining, well, okay, well, if there was a big pandemic, like, how would people react? And, and I suppose like some of those things were exactly the way that almost exactly the way that people reacted, you know, what would have to happen? When would things close down? The one thing actually that, um, that I hadn't kind of thought of that, you know, people have asked me, did you, did you sort of beef it up a bit more? Like, did you put in more similarities or something when you were in the edits? And the answer is absolutely not. If anything, I would have liked to have made it less similar wow. just to get rid of a bit of the spookiness. Yeah. <laughs> um, the one thing though, that I thought about in the edits that I, because of COVID, because of what was happening at the time that I hadn't thought about in the writing of it was, um, and it was, I think it was because my editor at the time, you know, she has two young sons and they, she was dealing with the school thing at the time. And everyone I knew had, had, had kids was, you know, this was in the period where no one was sure if the schools were going to close. And some people, you know, were saying they didn't want the schools closed because they didn't know what they were going to do for childcare. And others were saying, you know, they were terrified because, if the schools don't close and we all you know get really sick and you know I mean you know you've lived it yeah <laughs> um and it was in that time and and in my in in one of my rounds of edits I had this little note from Ruth that basically was like wouldn't they have closed the schools by now <laughs> and I admit that that was never so you know that was not a thing that I had thought of but it was on everyone's mind at that time in real life so um I, I don't think we ever fully answered that question in the book but um that was the one thing that I sort of almost thought about changing, but, um, you know, it didn't really fit with the plot to, to do that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it was the, 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 that kind of dual experience of thinking about the book and worrying that I was 
going to somehow do the wrong thing by releasing this book in this particular year and maybe we would have to put it off or maybe I'd have to write something new. But then to be honest with you, like I didn't have a lot of time, a lot of time to worry about that because like everyone else, I was worried about the thing itself. And, mm. and I think that I had a, a weird sort of interesting experience of it because when it was all kicking off, I was in the UK and things were much more serious there than they were much sooner, yep. you know, than it was in Australia. So I, when we sort of rushed back and, you know, we came back through this slight, it was a slightly apocalyptic experience. It felt like it at the time anyway, because, you know, we, the, the DFAT warning came out and then we, you know, we had been sort of umming and ahhing about like, oh, do we just pack everything in and do we go home? Like, what do we do? Can we get a flight? Um, flights were being cancelled left, right and centre. Like I had to spend hours on the phone to the airline. And then when we got to Heathrow, it was this sort of mad rush and people were crying in the airport on the phone because, you know, trying to get flights and they'd had three flights cancelled and so on and so on. And then, you know, we go through Singapore and it's almost empty, which is such a weird experience because mm. it's never empty and you're walking past things that are taking your temperature, like this just bizarre thing. In this, and, and we were so kind of anxious the whole way home thinking like, you know, it was never a sure thing. Like we, we even at Singapore, we thought they could cancel our flight and then the borders could close because that was at the time when they would, they would basically said Australians get home now before we close the borders. Um, and we made it in time, thank goodness. But it was so strange because we went through all of that and then got back to the Sunshine Coast. And it, I mean, everyone, not, not our family, because like we have immune, immunocompromised family members, but we're driving along the coast to our little quarantine place that we'd, we'd booked ourselves for two weeks and people are just out the brunch yeah. <laughs> you know it was like yeah. it just hadn't really hit Australia at that time they were you know it was at that time when we were a couple of weeks behind the UK and yeah it was a really spooky thing so it, basically that, that's a very long way of saying like I didn't have a lot of time at that point to really think too much about the book side of things because I was thinking about the real life side of things which was sort of worrying enough <laughs> yeah oh it's been scary, and the the um, I mean, some of the things you have in there are scarily spot on. I mean, like I said, the 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 reactions, the the moral dilemmas, the conversation. That the I mean, you even have the word lockdown, and you have a I know. Uh, oh, you know, I was just I actually had to stop in the middle of reading and put it down and just go, okay, wow. Like, you know, I yeah. I was thinking now I know why this book release has been delayed because if I had have read this back when there was toilet paper panic buying, you know, and nobody knew what was happening. And, you know, like you said, school, schools, I mean, I don't think I could have gotten through it, you know? Yeah. I, and I, I, this is too I, and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have wanted the book to, I mean, it was, you know, it was delayed for other reasons. Like I'm pretty upfront about the fact that it was delayed a couple of times. This book and the first time was definitely my fault. Like I took ages to write it. Um, <laughs> and the second time was kind of, you know, it's partly my fault and mostly no one's fault. It was just the situation and, and, and just the fact that it's kind of hard to, to, we were already on sort of this crash schedule with, with publishing the book and then trying to publish on a crash schedule in the middle of a pandemic is kind of impossible. Yeah. But also, yeah, I think it did, it did work out very well because if we had published at that time, I would have felt really uncomfortable when everyone was in the thick of it. Mm. Um, you know, plenty of people still are in the thick of it around the world. Like it's, it's not, yeah. it's not as if we're out of the woods, but I think we all, it's sort of become this weird new normal and we yeah. kind of all have a, a kind of, you know, better, better perspective on things now than we did back then when no one knew what was going on and, you know, so on. But, um, no. but yeah, it was such a strange experience because even going through those last edits and, and the, and the copy edits and everything, and then, you know, just 
I, I, I kept having to put in the little notes to my editors, like, I would just like to remind everyone, <laughs> you yes. know, cause I didn't, cause they, they had a, you know, they're, they're in and dipping in and out of the book. It's not as if they, they have their head in it 24 seven, like I do, but I just wanted to remind them, like, I didn't add this in. Like, you remember, I wrote this last year, this particular bit. Just yeah. weird things were happening. Like there was, there was that, I don't know if you remember the, um, at the time when the Tories brought out the stay alert posters that were just, mm-hmm. you know, yep. I mean, yeah, ridiculous. And there was already, there's, there are oh, posters, posters there's, yeah. I, mean, I don't want to, spoilers, spoiler warning yeah. everyone, but like there is a point where a very conservative political party in Nevermore um, actually put out posters saying, I think they said be alert instead be of stay alert. Yeah. And, you yep. know, but it was just like, I just read this when that came up, I was like, people are going to think I did this deliberately. And that, yeah. that kind of gave me, gave me slightly the heebie-jeebies, but yeah. um what you I even mean, what had, um, <laughs> you even had like a form of contact tracing, which, you know, I was like, how did you, like, how did your brain even go there? <laughs> Wait, which was that bit? Remind me what, which bit are you talking about? Well, they were the... trying to figure out where, how the virus was spreading around and who, you know, who, oh, right. who was yeah, passing yeah. on. So, so the... you know, you yeah. never said the word contact <laughs> tracing, but that's basically what it was, right? <laughs> I was just, my brain still oh. went to like, did I put an app in the book? I can't remember. Slightly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, no, this yeah. is it. It's like, it's, it's a virus. I mean, the weird thing is, is that this book, I, I, you know, it's, so the, 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 it was always going to be a quote unquote outbreak book. Like it was always going to be about a disease, about a pandemic. When you, you, you would know, like when you, in publishing your publisher, when you sign with them, like say you sign for a trilogy of a series, they generally want like a series outline. So you've got to write, you know, book two is going to be about this and book three is going to be about this. And this was back in 2016. And I already had the plot. I'd had the plot years earlier because I really planned these out long a long time ago but it's it's on that original series outline that I sent to them in 2016 like it says it was originally going to be called the nothing pox um back then um but then I had never said that word out loud and when I started actually writing the third book and was and had a reason to be talking about it out loud I realized how unwieldy that word is in your mouth (laughs) nothing pox it's really I was like I can't stand in front of schools you know (laughs) for three weeks on end saying nothing pox nothing pox Um, so I so I went for the much nicer hollow pox um but but yeah it was it was like you know planned so far in advance but I I know I was made I was about to make a point something like that but I tend to go off on tangents and I can't remember what it was I was going to say um just yeah no I can't remember you go (laughs) (laughs) well I was just gonna say there was you have a in my copy anyway you have a there's a letter at the front where you promise that then in the next book they're going to go on a picnic and there's going to be a copy (laughs) I was like yeah okay so if this is what's going on if I write things and then they happen then what can I write that will be happen like okay everyone everyone has their dreams come true or you know (laughs) Yeah, everyone, yeah. Everyone has a nice time. There's no exactly. conflict. Exactly. Nothing bad. <laughs> and I think I said in the review, like, and you mentioned earlier, like it's actually a great. I think it's going to become a great resource for parents and teachers and librarians to use as a sort of allegory for this year, to you know help kids kind of understand what went on and and why and why people reacted in that way and you know why there were riots I guess, and yeah. I, I guess so. I mean, I my. My fear, though, is that because I never write, I mean, I know, you know, and this, uh, this entire conversation is about the fact that, like, I'm not writing anything to be, to be allegorical. Like, I, my, my worry is that um, when, uh, my worry is that people kind of will take, will draw, like, it's natural when you're reading it to kind of compare it to what has been going on in the real world. But 
you know, it's, there are moments in it where people are acting in a certain way or taking a certain stance. And, you know, if that was happening in the real world, then maybe that wouldn't be the right stance to take, or, you know, maybe you don't want to be just like, yep. Oh, well, yep. the bad guys, the bad guys in the book are saying this thing. And that's like what the, what this group of people were saying in actual real life. So I guess that's the wrong thing. And that's, you know, that like, that's the only thing that I'm slightly cautious about that people don't kind of read too much of it into it in that way. Yeah. But, yeah. but, but yeah, I mean, I suppose if anything, if it's a, like weirdly, weirdly what I hope is that it might turn out to be quite a comforting read like yeah. you know my worry was that it would be exactly the opposite but you know it's it is it is kind of comforting especially for kids going into a fantasy world and reading about real life issues I mean that, why else do we write fantasy like exactly. obviously it's escapism and it's and it's to and it's some kind of joy and some kind of comfort but it also does need to reflect kind of the real world and real world experiences because it is it's the perfect framework for exactly that for like that's you know as as a kid when you're reading about frightening dangerous things happening in a fantasy setting like you're enjoying it because it's it's a giving you adrenaline and it's giving you you know it's 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 fun but also it is helping you kind of come to grips with yeah dangerous things that happen in the real world so so yeah that's a very roundabout way of saying like if anything I just hope that it it kind of provides a weird kind of comfort yeah look I think it will thing to say about a disease book (laughs) yeah well it's you know there's a lot of uh, I mean that's what storytelling is right storytelling is a way to understand the world without being in this situation Mm. yourself but I think you know there's a lot of uh, you soften it in the book and there's you know there's there's a lot of explanation there's a fear and this is why this is happening so you know you can understand better why people's reactions are what they are I think um I think that's why it does it does make it a good yeah example. and in the end the book becomes much more it is not so much about a scary disease you know it is yeah. there it is about that but it's really about the way that people react to it and the way that people turn on each other and yeah. um and blame each other and and just about you know Morrigan coming to grips with the fact that you know there's literally a chapter that is called it's it's named after something again slight slight small spoiler warning you know someone says in the chapter we're all on the same side really yeah. and that's what i named the chapter because you know it's a good reminder we are all on the same side like we yeah. all want the same thing we all want to get through this yeah. um you know and it, people need to sort of try, try try to remember that try to remember that and kind of work together and put aside our differences yeah exactly i love that i love that chapter um <laughs> so let me just move on my questions um so you know and we've been talking about this a bit there's there's darkness there's death in nevermore um and i know lots of younger children who have either read the books or had them read aloud to them i think you do a great job of tempering the darkness with humor and light how important is it and how hard is it to achieve that balance that's to me that's the most important thing um it's not important in the way that like well I'm writing these dark bits so I have to work hard to go back and put in little moments of humor to me like the humor comes first to me I just kind of write things that make me laugh like I think that's the only way to I don't know like I'm not a comedy writer but for me that's the only way that I can write comedy and the only way I can write humor is I just think of things that make me laugh and if it doesn't make me laugh it probably not gonna go in there and in fact there are things in there that I know uh, uh, people 
some people in my editing team might have wanted to cut it like very silly moments and I literally would write the words you can take this out you can rip it out of my dead hands like, <laughs> <laughs> I, am, I am leaving this silly moment in and I actually don't care if I am the only person on the planet who finds it funny like I'm keeping it in there because that. that's kind of what it's there for but you know those that that's my aesthetic my aesthetic is is quite dark but quite silly um, and I feel like that comes from a lot of different sources. You know, I, I, I definitely have um, a lot of influence from having grown up reading the Tomorrow When the War Began books. You know, those, those books are about such a dark, serious subject matter, but they're also really funny, like really, really funny. Um, and, and just such moments of lightness and, and humour in amongst the the upsetting you know um storyline and doctor who as well like doctor who is a massive influence on me and i feel i feel like doctor who and and even you know i'm, I'm not as familiar with douglas adams but you know doctor who douglas adams all of that kind of um vibe of storytelling of having the very sinister right a lot like really rubbing alongside the very silly sometimes in a matter of moments you know <laughs> cutting mm -hmm. from one to the other and um uh, undercutting the, the the dark moments with just something absolutely ridiculous so that's what I love I love that and I don't and I could never lose that from from the books because you know they will get dark like I mean I keep saying oh I'm sure they'll get darker like you know they started out pretty dark like yes. it started out with a press conference <laughs> announcing the death of a child yes, like yeah. you don't really get much darker than that that's yeah. dark yeah. um but but I think we'll kind of there, there will be we'll go deeper into that darkness, like because Morrigan will go deeper into dark things and she will feel them more and she will have, as she gets older, she will, she'll have more of an understanding of the, the dangers of this place and of the things that she's experiencing and seeing and going through. And I think that is, it's not that the actual plot points and the things that happen will get somehow darker and more dangerous. It's not that at all. It's just that as Morrigan gets older, <clears throat> excuse me, she's going to, um, just just have a more kind of adult humor not adult but you know more of a more of a human kind of understanding of it and yeah. and feel it a lot more yeah so. and you've left Morrigan Crow in rather an interesting and problematic position at the end of Holopox and <laughs> uh, you did say that you plan all these in advance um but I'm, I'm interested to know do you plan everything like there are some small details that sort of mentioned maybe uh, one of the examples I had was the fire blossoms mentioned I think it was in the first mm. book when Morrigan first goes to the Wondrous Society and then they came up as a sort of minor plot point in Hollowpox do you plan that yeah. or does that come up as part of the story yeah 100% that was planned so there are a lot of moments like that um that were you know I I thought I had a feeling that possibly it might come up in either book two or book four um, but it ended up being coming out in book three, the, the callback to that. So um, it, I never know exactly. Well, no, I, I sometimes don't know when it, when exactly it's going to happen. Like, oh, is this going to be a moment that reappears in book seven or is it going to be book two or three or whatever? Um, but there are, there are a lot of things. There are a lot of things from book two, book one and two, and even now from book three, that when people read it, they, they will have, they won't realise that, um, you know, it will be things that you will just, they're, you're, they're designed for you to just, your eyes to glaze over. <laughs> like, yeah. They're designed for you to not particularly notice them. And then something may happen down the track where it'll just ping in your mind and, and maybe you'll look back and, and be like, oh, that was actually planted there. But having said that, that's not every, not everything, you know, yeah. and, and there are so many things that have happened in book two and, and especially in book three that I hadn't planned at all. Um, Rook, I hadn't planned. Um, 
you know, she, that, that was mm. something that just occurred in the moment when I was writing it. I suddenly went, Oh, okay. There's again, spoiler, spoiler warning, but, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Oh, there's, there's, there's another one of them. Yeah. Um, so, and, and that's quite fun for me as well, because like, I, I do plan a lot. I'm definitely a plotter, but I really enjoy being surprised in the moment as well. And I think that if it gets to the point where I actually can't surprise myself, then I don't know how I'm going to surprise my readers. So I hope that it's always going to be a bit of a mix of the two of being able to have that satisfaction of finally resolving that thing that happened one or two books ago. Um, but also have the other satisfaction that comes with writing and suddenly things sort of slot into place and you think, Oh, that's what happens. How fascinating. I had no idea. <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> and you know, it's, it's great. Cause um, you know, when you're learning how to write, you do hear that, um, you know, everything needs to matter. Everything that you write about needs to matter because if you've got a weapon in, in chapter two or something that it has to go off later on, you can't just put it in there and not because, you know, your reader's going to expect it to go off. So, and it's nice that even these slight, even smaller details are coming up later on. But um, I love that. Yeah, you've and, room and for... more, more even, I mean, there are definitely going to be things. I don't think it's going to be possible to, because, you know, I'm, I'm laying down a lot of threads. I'm laying yeah. down a lot of big threads and a lot of little threads. And I, I don't know that it's going to be possible to resolve every single one of them in a manner that is going to satisfy every single one of my readers. Like, no. just because the thing grows, right? The thing, <laughs> the thing is huge. growing and getting more and more unwieldy. Like, um, and and I'm, I'm certainly going to give it a red hot go. And I, and I definitely have very well laid plans. But it's not as if every single... I, I would... I also don't want readers to... <clears throat> sorry I've got a bit of a croaky coat today I don't I don't want readers to feel like they've got to work too hard do you know what I mean like I want mm. I want them to be able to enjoy the story rather than thinking what am I missing here that's being foreshadowed you know yeah. having said that that's also half the fun is like looking for the riddles and 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 figuring out ways that they that they might pay off later on mm. um but you know it, I think more than anything rather than every if you if you lay down a weapon in one chapter it has to go off later more like if a weapon goes off metaphorically speaking you know at, at some point then you have to have laid that particular one down earlier not that yeah. every every thread has to be picked up but that you know I, I don't know if I explained that very well but <laughs> <laughs> no surprise yeah I, what, what is it the uh the the god in the machine you can't have the god in the machine you've got to have led up to that point so I, now what I love about the whole series and it's quite a you know, there's quite a lot of pages in this series and it's going to keep going mm. is that the Nevermorean feel <laughs> and the, the names, how do you, how do you decide on names that fit that this Nevermorean, you know, favorite thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's I probably this. obvious. That's the thing that I take kind of the most delight in. And that yeah. definitely comes from like, as a kid, I was that kind of slightly oddball kid who would just write lists and lists and lists of names. I was obsessed with names. I would find them in, you know, books of mythology and find them in stories that I loved and um, baby naming books and baby naming websites and the credits at the end of movies. Like I was always looking for cool names and I was, and I knew, I really did know even as a young age, I'm like, I'm either going to have to write books or have 45 kids. Because <laughs> I, <laughs> so I took the easy way out and I, <laughs> <laughs> and I did the book thing. Much easier. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I'm obsessed with it. I love it. You know, I, I love having little 
not necessarily foreshadowing. Like I think the whole, oh, I'm going to foreshadow the plot twist of a character by naming them a certain thing, you know, that can be fun, but it has been a bit done to death now. And I think that readers are too savvy. Mm. So it's, it's really hard to surprise readers with that, you know, now. Yeah. Um, but I do still like getting, um, finding the perfect name, and, and it's not necessarily going to even be always because of the meaning, but sometimes it's just going to be the look of a name on, on the page that I really like yeah. um, or the sound of it when you, when you speak it out loud um, and just kind of the perfect thing that, that fits, that fits their personality. So that's part of the joy for me is I could spend, like if the whole job was just naming things and naming people, I'd be delighted. <laughs> well, I know who to, there's all that other stuff. <laughs> I know who to contact now when I'm stuck for a name. I love names, but um, yes, I just find please. it hard. Every time one of my kids get pre- my, one of my friends get pregnant, I'm like, okay, can we talk about the name? I'm the worst. The worst. <laughs> oh man, naming my kids. Oh, it was it was so fun, but so stressful at the same time. I'm, I still like the names, thankfully. Yeah. But I'm actually writing a book at the moment. I'm just sort of in the beginning. I'm brainstorming, and I've written like a few chapters, but the whole book came about because of the name oh really yeah it just I was actually doing a writing course and the um the person who runs the course she she put together some lists of first names and last names and was like okay put pick a first name pick a last like you just randomly do it but I don't do that because <laughs> I need something that's going to work <laughs> for me so I just you know I came yeah. across this name and I just and the first name and the last name and I just went that evokes it's everything for me. Like, you know, there'll be names that go together that don't mean anything. They're just, you know, but this name evoked this whole, there was a little bit of a story that I'd worked on a few years ago that just, it just, it all came together. And then I've picked another name as this character's brother. And I'm like, this is perfect. So now I'm writing this whole book based on, you know, a name. So names, you know, they're just, look, yeah. I I 100% agree with you. Like, I I think that it's, 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 I'm glad to hear you say that because when I talk about how important like the names of the book are to what the plot is, I feel like, I don't know, it feels like a weird sort of cheat thing. Like, Mm. you know what I mean? Because like so many authors will be like, oh, well, I, you know, never come up with a name until the end. And I've, yeah, oh, like right. it's not something I think about it's not important but I'm like it's the first thing I so think about. important and yeah. all of the names of the book like I know what most of the names of it, of the books are going to be um right. there are a couple right at the end that are that possibly could change and have changed multiple times but it's just going to depend on how everything plays out but definitely the first seven I've had named for forever for years and years and years and years right. and um obviously nothing, nothing pox changed to hollow pox but um <laughs> um but you know I the, the words came first like I when I realized that the first book was going to be called Nevermore I loved that so much and I loved the convention of having like um the three-syllable name and it's a um I, I always forget the word is it is it a compound compound word compound word or composite word I always forget mm. the, the name for it but you know yep. two two words put together yeah, compound, two syllables yeah. one syllables like once I had that pattern I then literally made a, it sounds so mercenary when I talk about it in this way but like I made a list of two syllable names that I two syllable words that I enjoyed and a list of one syllable words that I enjoyed wow. and I just put put them all together until I found a word that appealed to me and so it was like one the 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 word wondersmith came long before oh. the concept 
concept of what a wondersmith was and long yeah. before the concept of what wonder was and and nothing pox as i said it was nothing pox originally but then that felt such, like such an unwieldy word i ended up changing it to hollow pox in the writing of it which i like a lot better yeah but that came and then and then i had to figure out i was like oh what is that what's that plot and so literally the plot of every single book has come from the name of the book first Wow. Um, which is a very backwards way of doing it, I think, but it's the best way for me to do it. <laughs> well, I don't, <laughs> I, don't fun. I don't know if it's backwards because um, so Jen Storer is the one that ran this course. And, you know, for her, that, you know, that's the, that's the thing for her is that it comes from the name. You've got to have something that evokes something. You've got to evoke a feeling before you can find the story and then, then figure out the plot because you can't figure out the plot, you know, if you don't know what the story is, right? Yeah. And they're not the same That's thing. Not, I'm really so. happy to hear that, honestly, because I really thought it was like, man, am I doing this wrong? It's <laughs> <laughs> so nice to know I'm not the only one. Thank goodness. <laughs> well, I have to, you know, I'm, I'm still, you know, learning and writing and, and I'm just in awe that you have planned and plotted out. I'm, I can't even plot a 40,000 word book at the moment. Well, I can, but I'm, it, I find it really hard. But the fact that you've plotted out. I mean, I think at the moment is the key word, the key phrase though, isn't it? Oh, it's like, yeah, can anyone do true. anything at the moment? I'm shocked <laughs> at anyone being able to do anything right Well, now. you I'm know. <laughs> well, I actually, um, I have to say it's the school holidays at the moment and I homeschool. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I don't have a, a full-time job, but um, I'm just, I'm getting to read so much. And I'm actually, oh, I'm actually at the moment reading a book on grammar. Like it's on writing literature and it's actually for high schoolers. It's an American series and it's amazing. So I'm actually like, Oh, what's it feeling? Called? Oh, it's, it's a, it's a curriculum called Michael Clay Thompson. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a, it's a whole um, grammar writing curriculum for, you know, as I said, for kids, but it goes oh, wow. from very, very sort of beginner, but it's really, really engaging. And I was looking at the older books, like the high school books. And I was like, some of this I have never done. And I, I grew up in England and did very, you know, English. Um, mm. I didn't do high school there, but I did primary school. There's so all my reading and writing and grammar and everything was English, but I'm like, and I've done, you know, lots of writing courses, but I'm like, oh, there's some of this I haven't covered. And it's, you know, I was reading wow. the Declaration of Independence today to, in its, in its chapter about paragraphs. And it's just, you know, so I'm, I'm continuously learning. So, you know, when you say, when I say yet, it means um, also like I'm practicing, I'm learning, I'm getting there. But the, the, the idea of, is it seven books? Is that how many it's going to be? nine i've planted as nine nine, nine. <laughs> right well the idea of planning nine big i just i just it's like <laughs> go and ask me to build a building like i have no idea how to do that so i'm quite in awe it was a good idea before i wrote any of them i actually knew how hard it was to write a book um but no it's, it, i've never really wavered from that like i decided very early on for for a couple of different reasons that it was going to be it was going to be nine and each book was going to be roughly a year, although it will not quite be a year for each one because that would make Morrigan 19 when the series finishes. And I'm not, I'm just not really up for that. Yeah. Um, so it will be slightly less than a year for each book. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm sort of, cause I mean, historically I am a bit of a quitter. Like I, this is Nevermore was the first book I ever wrote. It was, and this is the only series I've ever written. Um, I've, wow. you know, I didn't, I don't, I know that a lot of authors have books that they, wrote years ago and, and stashed away I just this was this was the book for me I wow. had I'd had a plenty of ideas beforehand and started and stopped and started and stopped and throwing things away and never finished a single thing and this was just the one that for some reason stuck and I think so much of that was also that I decided early on and I realized early on that actually to tell the story that I want to tell it needs to be about nine books um 
and so just having that kind of framework um it 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 gave me like a really big sandpit to play in um and that to me is the joy I guess because I am such a plotter and and I just I I'm so I really enjoy minutiae like I really enjoy the, the the small details of the world and I can get very focused on you know plotting out things in this world and in these books that will honest to goodness probably never see the light of day like I have so much useless information about this world and then some things that I don't think about very much at all that I just think you know oh that's not you know like whatever I can fill in those dots later so um there's kind of no rhyme or reason to it particularly but that is the thing that kind of weirdly is able made me able to finish that that first book and really keep going and stick with it for now it's been like you know, like the, I, I wasn't writing it constantly from the age of 18. Like I definitely put it down for months and sometimes years at a time before I ever went back and finished it. But it has been part of my mental landscape for like 17 years now. Wow. And that is purely just because I, I just decided to, to, to go all in and really just throw every weird fun interesting idea that I had that could probably I could have taken and made it a completely different book or a completely different start of another series or start of a sort of you know short story or something and I just thought no I'm going to wrap all of that up in Nevermore I'm going to make this a real feel like a real world with lots of different stories and I want it I want all of these characters even the characters that you only see on the page very briefly and even the adult characters who are kind of just you know, satellites kind of, mm. um, you know, moving around more again, I'd still want them to feel like they are real, real adults and people with lives and internal lives and, and, um, and, you know, interests and ambitions and personalities of their own, even if you don't necessarily see a lot of it on the page. Mm. So that was, a, again, that's a long answer. Now you know how I can sign myself onto nine books is because <laughs> when I start going on something, I just don't stop. I just keep going until someone says stop. Yeah, I, love it. <laughs> I love it. Well, and that, that kind of commitment is, it's just, it's commendable really, honestly. I mean, I've wanted to write, I've wanted to be a writer, you know, since I was a kid and, you know, whereas and I do have a couple of novels that I've written for kids and that I've, they're never going to see the light of day. Like they're in my bottom drawer and, I've just moved on to the next one because um, I think because, yeah, I, I don't know. I, once I I've written that it, commendable, just... to be honest, like I just, I don't know how, I don't know. So many writers can, can move from one story to the next and not get bogged down in it and, and have the next new thing and, and know when to put something away. And, and also who knows? I mean, you say it will never see the light of day, but uh, maybe it will. Like yeah, maybe, well, maybe one day you're going to pick that up and go, actually, I could go back to this. Yeah. So there, well, there are, there are going to be like a really useful thing to have. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, there are a couple, I think, yeah, maybe one day I'll rewrite that, but yeah, it's called shiny new object syndrome. <laughs> Yes. You know? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. I know. I 100% know what you talk about. And I talk about this, uh, not in those particular words. I love that name for it. Um, <laughs> but like, I, I talk about this a lot in my, my school talks because, you know, that was a problem that I always had is that like, oh, like, because getting the ideas for things is not a problem for me. Like I, my, mm. that's just the way that my brain works. I'm, I can't, the problem is stopping the ideas coming and focusing on just one instead of go like going yes. to the new shiny interesting yes. fun thing and, and yes. throwing away the last one and so the way that I kind of got around that and the way that I actually finally finished Nevermore and it did take a long time but the way that I stuck with it is that literally every shiny new object every shiny fun new idea instead of 
having, as I said, instead of starting something new, I just made it part of this universe. And I either tucked it away with, oh, okay, well, I can use that in book eight or book seven or whatever, or I just, um, you know, made it another little weird subplot <laughs> in, in Nevermore. So shiny okay. new object syndrome can actually be quite, quite useful. I make think. it work for you. <laughs> I'm going to have to keep that in mind and make it work for me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, or, and I think it, it may. It, oh, sorry. Go on. No, no, you go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say, like, I, I think that it, um, it, it's so weird because it's part of my procrastination problem as well. Like those things are all tied in together. I'm a major procrastinator. I, um, I do find it hard to focus on things, and so I'll, I'll focus on, as I said, I'll focus on minutia, and I'll spend a lot of time, like, just just really diving deep on something that's just not not necessary and I should be doing something else um but you know in a way that kind of did work and 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 procrastinating and 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 building a massive world from all of these little little tidbits and new ideas and whatever it did benefit in the end because instead of finishing it in six months which some amazing authors can do plenty of authors can apparently do that write a book in six months i'm just not one of them um but if i had done that you know i wanted to do that because i thought that was the thing that you had to do um to be a successful author and i really wanted to do that in the beginning but if i had done that for me it would have been like it would have i would have written a bad book in that time like i would not have written the book or i just wouldn't have written the book that i would love as much as i loved nevermore mm. um and so it just giving that giving it that time to kind of incubate and being slow yeah. and and it just made it just meant that the story deepened the world felt more sprawling and it felt and it and to like i want to it gave the it gave the impression that i wanted to give which was that in nevermore you were seeing the tip of an iceberg and that there is you know, just so much more going on under the surface and maybe you'll see some of it someday. Yeah. And and that's, I think that really lends itself to, you know, I love being in the world of Nevermore. I mean, a lot of the books that I read, because I have so many books to review, I read them quite quickly and I need to get them done to get on to the next one, the next one, I've got to do the review, yeah. and, you know, whereas, you know, your book, I'm just like, just, I just want to slow down and just be in this world Aww. and enjoy it for a bit. So yeah, Thank I think that, that comes that... through. Yeah. that's so kind that's that's really nice to hear that's I mean because that's that's like the dream of of what you would hear about you you know that's exactly what I want people I want people to feel like they want to be in this world and that the world is their world and it belongs to them and that's yeah that's really nice thank you very much and you and you know what I think there's another thing you can say about it is that I know I'm an adult and I love kids books but it's a kid's book you know and yeah (laughs) I you know I want to be in that world and I'm an adult so you know it appeals to not just kids, but um, yeah, everyone. So I think it had to because I was, I could only, I could only, I don't know how to, uh, it sounds going to sound silly from a children's author, but I don't know how to write for kids. Like all I know is how to write a book that I enjoy writing. That's, that's what I know how to do. And I think that maybe that is what kids do respond. That's, that would, that would be why I know that it has an adult, a pretty sizable adult readership. It's because Mm. I'm an adult and I enjoy it. I, I liked writing it. I like being in that world. But also maybe that's also what kids have responded to in that it doesn't ever assume that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not an adult trying to think about how do I talk to a child? I'm just mm. talking to a child and writing to a child the way I would write to myself. And I'm kind of doing them a favour of assuming that they can keep up. And you know what? They bloody can. Like, <laughs> they can. I don't know why, uh, you know, I don't know why people kind of think that I mean not not certainly not most writers I don't think like I you know there are some brilliant children's books out there that that know exactly how to talk to kids because it's like well this is how I would explain things to an adult um but 
yeah, I just, I'm, there's just kind of no need, I think, to talk down to kids because they, they're they so much brighter and more understanding and empathetic than some people give them credit for. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I, like I said, I've got two boys and um, yeah, our tastes are quite different and they're quite selective in what they read, but you know, they will read what they will read. And it, 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 mm. there's a big, there's a huge, huge, um, I mean, they were reading these diary of a Minecraft zombie books today, which are like oh, really? thin ones. They're quite silly. They're, very, I mean, they're, they're sort of yeah. well-developed. They're actually, I think they're developed for um, older reluctant readers. So, okay, yeah. you know, the, the, it, it's all about Minecraft, but it's quite easy to read. Um, I'm, you know, my eldest was reading them when he's five and he's turning 10 in a couple of days. Wow. So he's, you know, and he, yeah, he, but that's he, brilliant. You know, well, he put that down and he went and read, started reading The Hobbit, which he's already read before. Amazing. So, you know, yeah, yeah they, like I, I always say, they, they need a variety of different things, not just for different kids, but each child likes a variety. You know, I, you know, I went from Nevermore to, well, I don't have much choice because I've got review books, but, you know, I might read a book like that <laughs> and then I might go read a nonfiction or, a, you know, much lighter book. So, or, you know, thinner book. <laughs> so um, no, it's, it's always good to have, but to that, have that's, those, I know. think what, but that I was going to say that, that is what makes kids such a good audience to write for. Yeah. Um, because you, you can't make them enjoy what they don't enjoy. No. They're not going to fake it. There's no kid in the world who's going to read something because they think they have to read it the way that we do as adults. Mm. You know, the, the, the worthy book of the season comes out or the, the, the big intellectual whatever comes out and we all think, oh, yeah, I better read that. Mm. Um, <laughs> but what I'd actually like to do is go back and read this other thing that I've read 20 times. You can't make a kid read something they don't want to read and that makes them brutal as an audience because if you let the pace slacken, if you, you know, they, they will give up on you and you won't get them back. Um, but it also makes them the best audience because when they do love something, they really love it. They love it with no embarrassment, the way that some adults are embarrassed about being enthusiastic and embarrassed about being joyful about the thing that they love. You know, yeah, yeah. they, they just, they just love it with, with so much joy and so much enthusiasm and, I mean, oh, I, I, that's, that's to me the, the whole joy of it. That's, that's what makes them the absolute best audience. Love it. Love it. Well, I could keep on talking about this for days, but um, we better push on. <laughs> um, are you ready for our six quick questions? Yeah, well, I don't know. I don't think I'm ever ready for those kinds of questions, but lay them on me. Let's do it. Right. I'll, I'll be gentle. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. Keyboard or pen and paper? Keyboard, absolutely. I type a hundred words a minute, so I would be I would be even slower than I already am if I used pen and paper. Ah, oh, same. But I do use pen and paper for brainstorming. I find that I just can't brainstorm in front of a screen. So there is something nice yeah. and tactile about it. I think. Yeah. Like I quite enjoy writing in like cursive, and yeah, yeah. there is something nice about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, favorite writing snack? Oh. Um, my writing snack is usually forgetting to have lunch until four o'clock in the afternoon. Because <laughs> um, if I have a snack there, I'm I'll focus on the snack. Oh. Um, <laughs> <instead of> the <laughs> way. Um, but do you know what? Do you know, this is so silly. My favorite, my my best writing snack is either it's not a snack. It's either black coffee or barocca because I just I'm just always desperately trying to get my brain to work faster. <laughs> well, that answers the next question, which is going to be tea or coffee. <laughs> 
100% coffee forever. <laughs> buzz, buzz, buzz. Um, ebook or the real thing? Real thing. There is nothing like having an actual physical book in your hands and trying to find creative ways not to drop it on your head as you are reading in bed. <laughs> especially a 500 page book. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> uh, cats or dogs? Both. I cannot choose. I always thought I was a cat person, but I am pretty obsessed with dogs. Anyone who sees my Instagram stories where I go to my local off-leash beach uh, and just constantly and taking videos of other people's dogs <laughs> will know that I do adore dogs. But I really love the way that cats make you work for their love. Nice. <laughs> love it you thought these were going to be quick questions but they're quick questions i just never give quick do you know what they never are (laughs) don't worry they never are (laughs) and last one which is the most difficult uh comedy or tragedy oh oh god i think that's real that is hard that's i i think for me i'd say tragedy just because you have to you know comedy I think sometimes when I'm writing something funny it's on the page before I know I've thought it you know it's like it just happens and it's like oh it's that just came out really quickly that's weird but Mm. with tragedy it's like you you know there's always I would say tragedy because like because of all of the editor's notes that are like but what is she feeling um Um, you know (laughs) but how does she feel in this moment um that must that must mean that tragedy's harder to write because I always have to go back in and beef it up a little bit (laughs) it sounds like um there's more of an emphasis on emotion when it comes to tragedy maybe yeah yeah and maybe that's that's the thing is that you know it's it's kind of getting in and grappling with your own emotions in a scene is is the thing that makes it a bit harder whereas fun light comedy is you know just comes comes easily Mm. well you know speaking of emotion we've got the end of book we've had the end of book three now and and like i said before morrigan crow's in a very very sticky situation i'm very much looking forward to seeing what happens in book four (laughs) me too (laughs) 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 is this something you'd like to tell us right now (laughs) Listen, you always think that you know what's going to happen and then suddenly something surprises you and, and you just, oh, okay, there it is. There we go. Oh, well, very much can't wait. Still Thank hoping, you. Always hoping for those surprises. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Jessica, for joining me on the podcast. It's been illuminating. And yeah, um, The Hunt for Morgan Crow, Holopox is out now in bookshops. Very exciting. It is. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. I really enjoyed it. You're welcome. Thanks again. Thanks for stopping by Middle Grade Mavens. If you'd like to know more about the Mavens, log on to middlegradepodcast.com or to find Julie online, drop by julieangrassobooks.com. And to find Pamela, stop by www.ueckermain.net.